Well, in Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, we read, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And then down in verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. This past week, England's Prince William and Princess Catherine paid a visit to America and we rolled out the red carpet. William was treated to an audience at the White House. They both visited the new 9-11 memorial. Will and Kate even took in an NBA basketball game where they met Jay-Z and Beyonce, as well as our very own king, King James. LeBron gave the little prince, George, the future British monarch, a replica Cleveland Cavaliers jersey with his name stitched on the back, no less. And I thought when I saw it, wow, how times have changed. For just 250 years ago, another Prince George was hung in effigy in the streets of New York. The King George in that day was America's public enemy number one. I guess we've always had a love-hate relationship with the British monarchy. And this seems to be God's attitude toward Israel's infatuation with a king. It too was a love-hate kind of thing. On the one hand, God hated the motive behind the idea of a king. For rather than trust God, the Jews wanted to be like other nations. They wanted to follow a God that they could see. The first king, Saul, he was a concession to their lack of faith. And this Saul was a disaster. Under his reign, they lost land to the Philistines. Saul ended up falling on his own sword. On the other hand, the second king of Israel was handpicked by God himself. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. God delighted in David. Like all men, David had his flaws. But David was a man of faith. You see, after God had rejected Saul, the prophet Samuel was sent to the house of Jesse to select the king's replacement. And Samuel should have expected a surprise especially after God revealed to him the criteria to use for his selection. He told him, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. You remember Saul was all about appearance and physical stature. But then he says, for the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesse called all of his sons together for the big interview. Samuel went down the row, waiting for the nudge from God. When none of Jesse's seven sons passed muster, the prophet asked the old man if these are all the candidates. Jesse replied, well, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is, keeping the sheep. And that's when the Lord told Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, describes a really cool thing that happened next. We're told, 
Samuel took the horn of oil. I mean, think of a quarter more of rich olive oil. And he anointed him in the midst of his brothers. He turned over the ram's horn and he poured all of that rich, creamy, smooth olive oil right down on David's head. The kid brother was to become king. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. From then on, God's presence and God's power clung to David like that thick, gooey olive oil. You know, it's interesting, this anointing with oil became the Israeli oath of office. Our newly elected president, he puts his hand on a Bible. But the new king in Israel, he was always anointed with oil. A ram's horn brimming with olive oil was poured over his head. It was a symbol of God's Spirit. For the king would need the Holy Spirit to govern wisely. In fact, all of Israel's future kings went by the title, the Anointed One. You see, God hated the initial reasoning behind the Jews' request for a king. But He loved and blessed and anointed the one He had appointed for that role. And in a sense, a horn of oil begins the Christmas story. You know, we drink eggnog and apple cider. We put peppermint cream in our coffee. But the true Christmas libation is olive oil. Christmas began with the anointing of David. As Isaiah here puts it, a root was picked from the stem of Jesse. The Spirit of God came upon a new branch in mankind's family tree. Hey, we trim an evergreen tree to start our Christmas But God also trimmed a tree. He selected the family tree of Jesse, and he trimmed it with a promise. At the time that David took the throne, the warmongering Philistines, they were on the rampage. They had invaded Israel from the west, and they had expanded their territory into the mountains, from the coastal plain into the heart of Israel. But David was used by God to deliver his people. He drove the enemy back to the sea, and he unified the Hebrew tribes. David took Jerusalem as his capital, and he built himself a palace. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, it sets the scene for what comes next. The Lord has given him rest from all his enemies all around. And it was during that time, one day, as David was strolling along on the portico of his exquisite palace, he surveyed Jerusalem's skyline, and he noticed an inconsistency. You see, the king was carrying out his affairs of state in a palatial mansion while the worship of God was being conducted in a rustic tent. I mean, this just isn't right. David understood that the one true God overflows the heavens, that his abode on earth, a tent, is not in keeping with his glory. A few animal skins on top of some bronze poles just wouldn't cut it. David thought if the idols of the nations around him had magnificent temples dedicated in their honor, why not the God of Israel? When foreign ambassadors visited Jerusalem, what was called the holy city, they saw the king in a palace and God in a pup tent. It was an insult to the Almighty. And so David wanted to build God a temple. But when he asked for permission, God refused. Imagine. David was the king, no less. Yet God denied him a building permit. Sounds like Gwinnett County. David had purchased the property, 
quarried the stone, cut the timber, gathered the gold, recruited the artisans. He'd made all of the logistical preparations, and yet God said no. No to David building him a house. Instead, God promised to build David a house. And this is amazing to me. It's just like our gracious God. David wanted to give, do a God a favor, but instead God says that he wants to do David a favor. And more than just a personal favor, God's promise to David will change the course of history. It will rescue the earth from Satan's clutches. For God promises David not a literal house, but a political house, a royal house, a dynasty of David's descendants who will rule God's people forever. Realize Saul's son had died with him in battle, but David would not only see his son succeed him, but God looked down into the future and he assured King David that he would always have a son sitting on his throne. You know, today we speak of the British monarchy. We call it the House of Windsor. Well, God promised David that Israel and eventually the whole universe would be ruled over a member of the house of David. How's that for trimming a branch on a family tree? It was the prophet Nathan who delivered this news to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest from your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A seed will come from David's body, a flesh and blood heir. A son will reign over Israel and build God a temple. In verse 14, God speaks of the special relationship he'll have with Israel's king. He says, I will be his father, and he shall be my son if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. God had stripped the kingdom from Saul and gave it to another, but not so with David's heirs. God will chasten them when needed, but never, ever completely reject them. The immediate fulfillment of this promise was David's son Solomon. When David died, Solomon succeeded him on the throne. This new king was the wisest and the richest man in all the earth. He built God this glorious temple, and God made Israel great among the nations. But it didn't take long for the house of David to fall into disfavor. The house of David needed the correction that God had promised in the covenant. It began with Solomon. Toward the end of his life, Solomon strayed from God. He trusted in his wealth. He multiplied foreign wives. 700 wives and 300 concubines. Can you imagine? Which really makes you wonder, how did the wisest man on earth end up with a thousand mother-in-laws? Well, if it had been one like my mother-in-law, it would have been great. But you can imagine in, among a thousand, there's probably a few duds in there. You know, you, you need to get myself out of this hole. Solomon's pagan wives led him and the nation of Israel into idolatry. And this was just the beginning of their downfall. After Solomon, it was a slippery slope. 
of the 39 kings who would rule Israel and Judah over the next 345 years, only eight would make any kind of attempt to seek and to obey the one true God. From the wicked Ahab to the evil, vile Manasseh, most of them mocked God. And according to the covenant, God disciplined the house of David with a series of spankings. When the king strayed too far from God's law, God would raise up a foreign army to attack and subjugate his people. The final blow came in 586 B.C. when the armies of the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem. They eventually sacked the city and they burned Solomon's temple to the ground. It wasn't just a trimming. God severely pruned Israel's family tree down to a root, to a mere sprout. In Isaiah 10, God compares the demise of Judah with the fall of another great kingdom. The kingdom the historians call the Assyrians. And Isaiah speaks of it as the clearing of a forest. In fact, you read about it here in the previous chapter. In verse 33, Isaiah writes this, Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bow with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down, and the haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. This implies some serious tree trimming. And I gained a new appreciation for the imagery that Isaiah uses here not too long ago when I had some trees taken down in my backyard. And I'm talking huge trees, really tall trees. I wanted to see the crew at work, what it would take to bring down such colossal trees. So I got an iced tea and I sat down on the chair on my back porch and I, I watched. And it was an amazing experience. First the climber, he heads up the tree, lopping off limbs as he goes. When he reaches the top, all that's left is a naked stick sticking out of the ground. And then he comes back down that tree, cutting five-foot slices off of that tree and letting them fall to the floor. When they hit the ground, man, those trees, they sound a thunderous thud. The house literally shakes underneath you. It's amazing to see trees once so mighty and so dominant there's suddenly no more. The once tall trees are nothing but a stump. And you see, this is what happened to Assyria. And Isaiah is warning that this is also what will happen to Israel. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 and 16 tell us, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by His messengers, rising up early and sending them, because He had compassion on His people, and on his dwelling place. God didn't want to see them judged. Every morning, God woke up with Israel on his heart, wanting to send them messengers to warn them. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. What sad words. There was no remedy. God tried to warn his people, but they were in too deep. To wake them up now would take drastic measures. So enter the Babylonians, God's instruments of judgment. 2 Kings chapter 25 tells the sad story of Zedekiah. He was the last Jewish king. You could say he was the last full limb on the family tree. 
After capturing Jerusalem, the Babylonian general murdered Zedekiah's sons before his very eyes. And then he plucked out the eyes of King Zedekiah so that the last sight the man saw was the death of his own sons. Zedekiah was then chained and taken back to Babylon. And there the Jews spent 70 long years. You could say 70 years in time out before God finally allowed his people to return to their homeland. You know, there is a military strategy called scorched earth. The invading army destroys everything that its enemy might be able to use to survive. Crops are burned, wells are poisoned, railroad tracks or airports are demolished, even potential soldiers are exterminated. This was Stalin's strategy against the Germans in the Second World War. This was Tecumseh Sherman's plan on his infamous march to the sea. Uh, when the Union soldiers marched to Savannah. And this was more or less what describes the tactics against the Hebrew kingdoms in this 6th century B.C. Imagine this happening to you. Imagine your property burnt to a crisp. Your once green turf is now black. Shrubs and bushes have nothing on their branches. Your only trees are now charred and burnt. You see, this was the spiritual landscape facing Israel. When Jerusalem was sacked, when the temple was burned, when Zedekiah was tortured and captured, many of the Jews, they despaired of the promises that God had made to them. But thoughtful Jews, faithful Jews, they remembered God's word. And they remembered Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, our text this morning. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. In other words, under the surface of all this devastation, of all this bleakness, there was still hope. God was still on the move. For just below ground level, there was a root. It was still alive, still growing, getting ready to break through the surface. Underneath all this devastation and heartache and loss, there was still a green shoot of promise. It wasn't even a limb, just a stem. But it was alive, and it was growing, and it was coming. The fire was unable to stop this sprout. Everything else was charred to a crisp except this root. It was still moist and green. This stem was indestructible. Nothing could kill it. This was the indestructible branch. Remember God's promise to David. His sons would be disciplined but never destroyed, never deserted. God had said, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever. And here God even uses a personal pronoun. He had said specifically, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Check this out. The stem was a hymn. There were faithful Jews who still held to the promise that God had made to David that a shoot would grow from his stem, that a branch would come from his roots, a seed from his loins, who would become an eternal king and who would reign over an eternal kingdom. And guess what they named this promised king? As heir to David's throne, surely God would anoint him just as he had anointed David. He would use a horn full of oil. Thick, gooey olive oil was headed for his head. 
And thus the Jews called this much anticipated, this eternal king, the anointed one. In Hebrew, it's the word Messiah. The Greeks called it Christos. And in English for us, it's Christ. Realize, when you're adorning your Christmas tree this year, Christmas is the story of God trimming a tree. It's about a family tree that gets pruned due to its own sin, pruned to the root. But that root returns. The little stem that was left, it comes back and it sprouts again. You see, Christmas is about the tenacity of God's promises. His relentless intent to fulfill all His promises to you and to me. That's what Christmas is about. A calorie pear is a full foliage tree with beautiful white blossoms. One such tree had been growing near Building 5 of the World Trade Center since the 1970s. But like all the trees in the area, the explosions on September the 11th, 2001, and the collapsing towers buried the tree under a mountain of metal and debris and rubble. A month or so later, though, one of the cleanup workers found this tree. It was smashed. It was pinned between slabs of concrete. The top of the tree had been lopped off. The rest of its eight-foot trunk was burned and charred. Its roots were broken. The tree had only one living branch left on it. Initially, the folks who found it thought there was no hope for this pear tree. But the Ground Zero crew, they asked a parks employee to give it a chance. And so they took it to a nursery in the Bronx. The folks there were equally skeptical. But once the charred bark had been cut off, and the roots had been trimmed back, and the tree had been planted into rich soil, it started to grow again. It was given the name Survivor. And yet this Survivor tree was still to be tested for in the spring of 2010, a storm with 100-mile-per-hour winds ripped the tree out of the ground again. Once more, the nursery workers questioned whether it would make it. Somehow it did. And today, the Survivor tree is part of the 9-11 memorial in New York City. You know, some people actually objected to its inclusion in the memorial. For it's unlike every other tree in the park. Its ugliness, or I might say its uniqueness, sticks out. In addition, it was planted so that its traumatized side faces the public. But to me and to others, the survivor tree is a vital symbol. Its doggedness reminds us that the roots of freedom and courage can never be extinguished. And this is what Isaiah is saying of God's faithfulness when he refers to the Messiah as the one green stem that rises up from the ashes. He is the root of Jesse that can be trimmed but never killed. And that root is coming when all hope seems lost, after the enemy has charred and blown through and broken and crumbled what we might value. God's promises never fail. For God has a man, a king, an anointed one, a Messiah who is well-rooted to stand up against the storms of life. And yet with every promise, there comes a challenge. And the challenge of a promise is always the waiting, is it not? 
Imagine waiting 600 years, six centuries for this Christ. That's how long God waited for Jesse's root to sprout, for a descendant to ascend. After the Babylonians had dethroned Zedekiah, no other son of David dared to rule over Israel and the Jews. After Malachi, even the voice of the prophets became mute. The period following the Babylonian exile leading up to the first century was known as the silent years. Reminds me of those times in my childhood when I watched the Apollo space missions. You remember the moon shots? I mean, it was exciting to follow the lunar landings on TV. But there was always a communications blackout when they re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. It usually lasted three to four minutes, but it was a suspense-filled three to four minutes. Felt like an eternity. This is Houston. Do you read me? And then that long wait. Rather than four minutes, it sounded like four hours. Felt like it. So imagine a 600-year communications blackout. That's how long it took for promised believers to regain visible contact with a descendant of David. If you had been looking on the surface, above ground, so to speak, you would have wondered what had happened to God's promise to David. The spiritual landscape in Israel was charred, bleak, barren, burnt. The royal tree had been reduced to a root, a mere shoot. But God had not abandoned His promise. A root was growing underground. God was working below the radar. God had gone off the grid to build His kingdom. And this is what God does. Even today, this is often his strategy. At times, God dives deep. He's still moving. He's still grooving, perhaps even more so, but not so that we can see. This is why to walk with him, you have to have faith. You have to believe. Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Let me tell you that the silence you're experiencing right now the communications blackout maybe you've had with God, it's a just a test of your faith. Will you trust Him? Will you believe in His promises? Before Jesus is the lily of the valley, before He's the rose of Sharon, He is the root of Jesse. Before the promise blossoms upward, faith has to take root deep, deeply and downward. We like lilies and we love roses, but first, we have to cling tightly to the root. This is why the most important 12 words in the Christmas story are the first 12 words of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Read that and think Isaiah 11. The root just broke through the soil. Love just sprouted. Both Matthew and Luke, they trace back the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, all the way back to King David. Jesus is the stem on the family tree that will sit on David's throne and rule forever and save his people. And I love this picture of Jesus in Isaiah 11. Jesus as the root. You know, a root isn't the glamorous part of the plant. You know that, don't you? Imagine buying a dozen red roses for your wife with the roots still attached. Handing them to her. She's not going to be so excited with those roots. She's going to say, what is this? 
But there would be no flowers without the roots. And there would be no salvation without God's promise to David of a root of Jesse, planted a thousand years earlier, trimmed through judgment and war and devastation, and always there, still growing below the surface. That's why the opening words of Matthew are so encouraging. The root that had endured crisis after crisis and hung on for so long was now ready to bear fruit. Think of the Old Testament as a charred, barren mountainside destroyed by a forest fire. Between the Testaments, there's a long, long time. But when the first verse of the New Testament, the gospel good news is presented, a promise sprouts. Spring has sprung. A blossom buds again. It's a new day with new possibilities. Life has been born again. For the eternal king promised to David has finally come. The tree that God has been trimming is now ready for display. After the first few days of our trip to Israel, after we've been touring for a few days, the people that have come with us, things are coming together for them. The verses that they've always read and are now starting to make sense, and they're starting to connect the dots, and they're beginning to see the bigger picture. And everyone has the same question. They always come to me after a few days, and they ask, Pastor Sandy, with all the archaeological and geographical and historical evidence around them, why don't the Israelis embrace the prophecies, prophecies and accept Jesus as their Messiah? It's always the perplexing question. And it's a good question. And I have two answers. Romans 11 verse 25 is the simple explanation. Blindness in part has happened to Israel. Rather than a host of rational reasons, Paul just chalks it up to spiritual blindness. The devil wants to keep God's people in the dark, and he works overtime to do just that. It's a spiritual battle. But there is another answer. For when Jesus came the first time, he wasn't the kind of Messiah that the rabbis and the scholars anticipated. They weren't looking for a root. A grassroots Messiah was not on their radar. They were looking for a person who laid down the law, who would crush his enemies, who worked from the top down, not the bottom up, who seized control, who imposed his will. Like the Jews of old, they wanted a king, a liberator, a conqueror who would end the enemy's oppression and launch a golden age. In fact, do you remember there was a time in Jesus' ministry when the Jews tried to force him to be their king? He refused, didn't he? He went underground like a root. He went off the grid again. Jesus was a root. And in many ways, he conducted his ministry humbly, lowly, in a down-to-earth manner. One day, the Jews, they asked Jesus, they said, where is this kingdom you keep talking about? He replied, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. No, it's not about what the public sees, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. From the very start, Jesus intended to keep a low profile, to avoid the limelight, to stay off the radar. He came to build a spiritual kingdom, not a political earthly kingdom. The phrase, root of Jesse, not only speaks of Jesus' pedigree, but it tells us that he intended to be root-like in how he went about his business and how he built his kingdom. You see, Christianity is the ultimate 
grassroots movement. Remember the guidelines that God gave to Samuel in choosing a king? They help identify his heir. The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And isn't that what Jesus is all about? He's all about the heart. He taught us that real righteousness, real worship comes from the heart. Rather than rule from a throne, He intends to rule in our hearts. In fact, Jesus is the King of hearts. Unlike the world we live in, Jesus operates from the inside out, from the bottom up, by wooing, not imposing. He draws us rather than drives us. Like David, He's a different kind of king. He's a root. And in Isaiah 11, we're told that when this root comes forth, it will be identified in two ways. First, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And second, he'll be a banner to the people. Even the Gentiles will seek him. Just as the recipient of the promise, King David, was anointed with oil, the ultimate beneficiary, Jesus the Messiah, the Holy Spirit will come upon him as well. The Holy Spirit will be the gooey, thick oil that flows upon his head. In the life of Jesus, the Holy Spirit brought seven traits. First, he was the Spirit of the Lord, as Isaiah says. Or in the Hebrew, the Spirit of Yahweh, the one true God. Jesus was the Son of David, but he was also God. There was a divine Spirit resting upon him. He was kingly, godly with a capital G. The innocent baby laying in the manger was also creator of heaven and earth. But the life of Jesus also bore evidence of six other traits. One Holy Spirit brought six traits that separated the Messiah among men. Call them the first essential oils. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These were all poured out upon Jesus. And today, Jesus conveys His blessings to us by the Holy Spirit. Once more, He pours out the oil upon our heads. The anointing oil still flows into the life of His followers. Jesus came to build a spiritual kingdom. His presence isn't always felt. His wisdom isn't always known. His might isn't always seen. His counsel isn't always taken. Even today, Jesus traffics in the spiritual realm. It takes faith and open hearts to perceive and receive His work. But He influences nonetheless. You see, roots are strong. Even underground, they still have a huge effect. Just check out my driveway. That's six inches of concrete, yet it's cracked and crumbled. And do you know why? There's a root pushing up from the underside. It's breaking and it's remaking what's on the surface. And though not seen, a root is a powerful force. And this is the effect that Jesus, this root of Jesse, wants to have in your life. He wants to break through. He wants to break you of your pride and remake your life into something beautiful and godly. Like trimming a tree at Christmas, Jesus wants to adorn your life with His presence, with His wisdom and understanding, with His counsel and might, with knowledge and with the fear of the Lord. I hope you'll let Him. 
this year, let the living Lord take root in your life. And finally, Isaiah tells us that the Messiah, this root, will be identified as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek Him, and His resting place shall be glorious. In essence, this all takes us to a really good place. God's end game is a glorious resting place for us. Isn't it interesting how our roots become our banner? The emblems on a family crest highlight our roots. Think of the American flag. It takes us back in history. The stripes represent the 13 original colonies. Red is for courage. White is for pure intentions. Blue is for vigilance and justice. Every time you salute an American flag, you pay honor to what Americans value. And this is what Isaiah means when he says the root of Jesse will be a banner to us. It will cause the Gentiles to seek him. Everyone will rally around our common root. This is why I love Christmas. For it speaks of roots. The beginning of this Christian movement. But it's also a banner. For it beckons us to come and rally around him and follow him. You see, Christmas is heaven's calling card. It's God's invitation. If God would love us enough to become one of us, if God rooted himself down deeply into the fabric of our history, if he nestled into human soil, then doesn't that mean he loves us and cares for us? Doesn't that beckon us to follow him? He grew as a root, a small shoot, under the surface, incognito, without any fanfare, unpretentious. Jesus came humbly and lowly, like a root rather than a treetop. And this is Christmas. Our origin becomes our banner. Christmas is a reminder that God still enters through the lowest door. That His greatness is in His ability to be small. That His power to change hearts stems from His willingness to be vulnerable and to love and even risk rejection. Hey, whenever we praise Jesus, we are rooting for a root. If you're a soldier in Afghanistan and you've been out on patrol and you've been in the village, it's been dangerous for you, but now you return to camp, as soon as you spot that American flag flying overhead, it does something inside you, I bet. I bet it stirs your heart. I bet it swells up some emotions. I bet you're reminded. I bet you pledge allegiance all over again. And this is what it means to have the root of Jesse as our banner. For Christmas is proof that God keeps His promises that all God's purposes ultimately take us to a good place, that despite our failure and our judgment and our rebellion and our hardships, even in the times when we think that all hope has been lost, Jesus is active. He is still at work in our lives like a root. When I can't see Him, He's still there. Like a root, I feel His push, His nudge, His influence. And he's growing this Christmas. Let's all get rooted in Jesus. Let's stir up our faith and rally around our banner and bring praise to our Lord Jesus.